And the cataphracts, they withdraw to a more strategic location that affords Serenus an overview of the unfolding battle. This is where we enter phase So the cataphract actually didn't make uh, an impact against Roman formation, right? You, you start charging, but then you kind of yes, wield around. Yes, precisely. And I think this was part of Serena's original plan. I think it was simply there to uh, intimidate, to play on the uh, to, to to sort of play on the Roman expectations, and that this battle was going to be unlike anything that the Romans had imagined. So we now enter phase two of the battle, and it is also here that Serena's, as he. Uh, as he withdraws his cataphracts to a more to a more strategic location that favors an overview, it's also here that Serenus instructs his baggage staff to make preparations for deploying out to the uh, battlefront and to do so in a way that is not visible to the Romans, uh, likely doing this by sending a company of ten camels at a time for each banner and so to keep the firing and rearming cycle smooth and near infinite. And the horse archers, they're discharging arrow after arrow, and the anti-armor properties are already visible as Romans at the forefront are getting wounded. Even so, the arrows rather wound than kill. The Romans deploy in their typical shield wall formation, or in a testudo. Uh, of course, we of course uh, we we associate the testudo more with the imperial style shields, but there's no reason that we uh, that we, we we could discount a, a sort of a shield wall formation even with these uh, Marian reform style shields so they would be anyway deploying that sort of shield wall to protect them against, against the the hailstorm of arrows so in spite of their losses this is not an unsound defensive tactic that they have assumed because at some point, the Parthians must run out of ammunition, right? I mean, that's the idea. And occasionally, the blight Roman troops would make attempts to scatter the Parthian bowmen, but this is, of course, to no avail. The Parthian light cavalry is much swifter. The, the horse breed is simply superior and, and more well-drilled than any other type in the Mediterranean. And the horseman is far more able as a, as a soldier and can fire his bow while turning back. And this would be the famous Parthian shot. So the Roman light troops realize that attacking the bowmen without support is folly and, and quite suicidal. The range of the Parthians also means that the Roman javelins have no chance of giving a reply to the Parthian arrows. And the Parthians are not running out of ammunition. It's actually the opposite. The whole tactic of waiting out the Parthians is a failure, really, uh, and one that the Romans simply couldn't foresee. They, they couldn't have foreseen this. And the initially clever Roman square has subsequently turned into a death trap where the Romans are fixed in position and now are unable to move because... Now, damned if they do and damned if they don't, as evident as their attempt to scatter the Parthian horsemen through light cavalry or light troops has shown. So Roman casualties are mounting and the situation is getting increasingly desperate. And the dry and hot climate is really just speeding up the process. 
there's so basically right now the the you know the rather than offering them the protection the roman uh, rectangle square shield mm, yeah. wall became immobilized yeah. while the Parthian horse archer just riding around them firing at will and because the armor piercing arrows you know those arrows sometimes can go through the shield so romans are quite helpless point they're just kind of just waiting to be pinkerchened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and here's another uh, caveat to this. I mean, there, there's only so much strength and discipline to a Roman soldier before he's going to get broken down. I mean, he has to hold up a rather heavy shield and watch his buddies get nasty wounds that staple their hands to their shields and their feet to the ground. And... If that wasn't enough, sometimes there would be squadrons of heavy cavalry of the Parthians deployed to aid in dispatching the Romans by breaking up those sheathed walls, by, by harassing their lines. So if the Roman is tremendously suffering, the Parthian, in contrast, is barely breaking a sweat. And this is very important to have in mind that the Romans are still outnumbering the Parthian by a factor of four. So the fact that the Romans are already struggling while having that many troops struggling, while the Parthians, at four times less the size, are barely breaking any sweat. This is significant to have in mind how the, uh, the tactics have played out. Yeah, this is also the difference between like mobile uh, mounted archer versus uh, infantry because uh, the, the, just the mobility that the horse archers have sometimes make them seems to be present at all places at all time just ride around you and shoot you from all <laughs> directions whereas you know you you are kind of helpless as an infantry yeah. at this point <laughs> even like because a lot of uh, battles between sedentary cultures which can field a large amount of man versus horse-centric, say, nomadic uh, army is that the nomads or the horse archers, they are fewer in numbers, but they make up for it in mobility because they're just like riding, a, they're basically performing dances around you on horses while showering you with arrows while you have very little way of replying. So in that situation, your number yeah. don't help you. <laughs> it's just... Well, spot on, spot on. I mean, I mean, what what else is there to add to that? That is spot on. I mean, here's the thing: the Parthian uh, light horse has light equipment. I mean, he he is his namesake. This is making all it, it all a breeze, and and he's not exactly unfamiliar to dry and hot climates. Now contrast this to the heavy heavy infantryman of the Roman who has to wear. Uh, armor and he has to carry javelins and he has to have a heavy sword and he, he has to carry this 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 cumbersome shield and then he, he is compelled to to assume a defensive position in a rather claustrophobic position it is going to take a lot on their their, their fatigue they're going to get fatigued at some point anyways so the parthians this is a little bit of a aside here but, but the Parthians also have a habit of wearing coal around their eyes 
which some have commented gives some protection against the uh, the uh, sun's rays. Now I don't know the veracity of this. What is coal? Coal is kind of like an eyeliner. Uh, it's it's kind of like an eyeliner that's made up from from uh, a galena extract. Uh, now I don't know the veracity of of how efficient coal is because well I, I don't wear any freaking eyeliner, but it isn't. <laughs> but it is an interesting detail to have in mind that 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 the Plutarch makes light of of details like this to describe how well prepared the the Parthians are. Now Serenus himself is described as wearing cosmetics and to have parted his hair in the Median or Persian fashion reflecting a prevalent uh, Parthian ar aristocratic taste. Uh, now, with all this said, the cataphracts are, of course, the exception. As we know later in, in antiquity, they're called ovenmen for a real reason. That's because in a hot climate, they must be feeling like hot ovens. Still, so far, they have performed admirably. Now, Crassus, at some point, must have understood that something was up. Because the Parthians are not letting up, and the casualties have mounted to the levels where, where something had to be done. And obviously, the Parthian horse archers are not getting... I mean, their ammunition is not getting depleted. They just still keep firing and firing and firing. So his son Publius Crassus is eager to attack the Parthians and to... Uh, and to take the battle to them. You know? So he prepares to muster a force of between 5,500 and 6,000 men. Now, among them are, are the 1,300 cavalry, out of which 1,000 were the Gallic horsemen, and eight cohorts of Roman infantry, which would be roughly 4,000 men, or slightly below, and 500 archers. So somewhere between 5,500 and 6,000 men in total. Now, to put the numbers in perspective, this is a rather substantial force containing an eighth of the light troops, more than a quarter of all the Roman cavalry, and arguably the best horsemen of their army, and roughly an eighth of all the corps infantry. And now we're going to enter phase three, because now Publius Crassus is leading the counterattack. Now, Garrett Sampson admits to not knowing which direction. But I have come to believe from my own research that it comes from the Roman left, that is, the Parthian right. The terrain to the northeast better corresponds to the topographical details given by Plutarch rather than to the southeast. Now, Serenus would have expected this to have happened at some point, and a great portion of the Parthian forces quickly withdraw at the sight of Publius breaking out. It is possible that there are some losses sustained in this, but we're not given any further details, so it can't be particularly significant. Now, this is, of course, a feigned retreat that the Parthians are staging here. This is an old trick. Publius pursues the Parthians, and because his forces is a mixture of types, somewhere along the line he gets detached from the rest of the troops who can't keep pace with his cavalry. Uh, he's well motivated and full of fighting spirit. However, he, even he understands that the coordination of his forces has broken, and they are now isolated and enveloped by the pursued Parthians who have now wheeled around. And truthfully, this is just the beginning of a massacre that's about to happen. And before Publius fully understands his situation, 
He is now faced before a massive charge from Serena's cataphracts. And believe me this, they are not faking anything this time around. And the cataphracts, they're now smashing into Publius' cavalry like a moving iron wall. Like a hot butter through... Uh, like 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 a hot knife through butter, and the Gallic cavalry, in spite of their numeric advantage, are simply slaughtered. They they stand no chance in this. Now Plutarch makes a glowing record of Gallic bravery, enumerating desperate tactics like holding the Parthian lances and vain attempts at wrestling down their uh, heavier Parthian opponents and sacrificing their own horses to charge uh, only to dive under the armor of the Parthian horses to stab them in the belly. But even Plutarch describes how the Gallic spears essentially were as efficient as toothpicks against Parthian armor, who in contrast have no trouble killing the quote-unquote naked Gauls rather easily. Now, with all of this said, the Gallic cavalry are outclassed, not just in type, but in quality. The Parthian cataphracts simply have superior armaments and superior training. They are the superlative horsemen of antiquity with the proven record of beating the Seleucids, the Bactrians, the Sakas, and the Armenians, all of whom held good reputation in horsemanship. The Gauls, mounted on smaller horses and being unarmored, were just chanceless from the start. Let's, let's be perfectly honest. The cataphracts suffer minimal casualties, while the Gallic cavalry is near annihilated and forced into a rout. This itself reflects the situation of Publius' infantry and the auxiliaries who are really not faring any better. The Roman counterattack has now failed and is now poised before total destruction. Now, Publius, along with his officers, Censorinus and Megabacus, opt for suicide than to be captured or killed by their Parthian opponents. And of this Roman detachment of 5,500 to 6,000 or so men, more than 5,000 are killed and less than 500 are taken prisoner. Publius' body is eventually found, and Serenus decides that the victory of this battle within the battle should be commemorated by decapitating Publius and putting his head on a pike. Now, uh, now this must be a major blow to, to the Roman morale. I mean, indeed. Publius himself, you know, is actually a quite capable mm. commander, right? He's known yes. for his bravery. And, and also, but the fame retreat that the Parthian employ, just a classic, classic tactic of like a horse archer uh you know hor like the the army from central asia yeah. or, or the people who had adopted that kind of central asian uh fighting tactic and and the but but at the same time even even if you know that might be fame retreat in the heat of the battle you know, can you imagine how hard it is to to stop your men from pursuing a retreating yeah. enemy? I mean, like when you are like a, a when your men are full of battle, battle lust, they see the enemy is in full retreat in front of them. 
the, the, the impulse is just to to pursue, you know, the Daniel's torpedoes full speed ahead. And that's why this tactic has proven exactly. successful again exactly. and again and again. Also be pointed out, to actually carry out such feign attack required quite a bit of a discipline on the part of the uh, the, the, the forces Indeed. who are designed Indeed. to, you know, lure in the enemies. Because otherwise you could... You know, turn into a real... Yeah, it, it could turn into a real route. I mean, there there is a point when this this feigned retreat was hanging in the balance. This is something most commentators fail to understand that when you have uh, when you have armies that operate according to command chains, coordination and and having that coordination work smoothly is really the key to have everything work out as planned. And there's always a very real risk that everything could just, you know, go to shit. You know, everything can just can just 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 break down. You know, so the fact that the Parthians got away with this, with minimal casualties, I should add, is a testament to their discipline, not only as horsemen but as soldiers. Very important to have in mind. And now that we have this this blow to the Roman morale, it's it's really important that that during this entire phase, that phase three of the battle is played out, Crassus is, is, is also waiting reports for how the battle goes, because as I mentioned before, the command command structures behind each contingent relies upon messages getting relayed back and forth in order to get uh, reliable updates. We often forget how uh, communications have to be relayed to and from uh, certain positions to give proper updates of how the battle goes. So incidentally, half of the Parthian army is also still busy harassing the main Roman army in order to keep them in place. Uh, this gives Serenus some breathing space to reorganize his forces and to resume his tactics from phase two. And Crassus, of course, grows more anxious and eventually orders a general advance towards the direction of Publius, still unknowing of his fate. Now, before he can move on for too long, the Parthians have gathered to their original position with the full array in sight. Now, the drama unfolds here. A lone horseman of the Parthian camp rides before the Romans holding a lance with Publius' severed head, extolling the bravery of a son sired by a father as cowardly as Crassus. And this tidbit though it is amusing and dramatic, is a, is a little bit incredible now, unless Crassus had an interpreter fluent in Parthian with him. Nevertheless, this, this did unnerve the Romans. They had sent a detachment that outnumbered the retreating Parthians, and the Parthians had barely suffered any losses, while that detachment was completely lost. And Crassus, however, kept it together. Uh, he was attempting to rally his forces with a reasonably stirring speech. Now, however, his troops were just really fed up with the entire situation. Uh, they got wounded, straying everywhere. Their, their cavalry got wiped out. And even if they had archers, 500 had just gone to shit. You know, it, the situation doesn't look very good for them. But Crassus, anyway, gets to finish his speech and to somewhat restore the flagging morale of his troops, but barely. The Parthians 
begin their horrific soundscape of drums anew, and the Parthian cavalry are now restocked with arrows, now begin to surround the Roman square again, and this time with much greater impunity and less risk posed to them, given that the uh, light cavalry of the Romans had been largely disposed of, and now greatly heartened and inspired by the triumph against the against Publius Crassus, uh, the attacks get much more brazen, and the cataphracts, now frenzied after their battle with the Gauls, are now mounting sorties where they charge the demoralized Roman lines with increasing ferocity. And Plutarch describes this series of charges as having the power to impale two soldiers in one strike. And that's about as dramatic as a description can go. So at some point, the Roman army was at, at a breaking point. And the fact that they didn't break is actually a testament to their good discipline and cohesion. Even at what must have been well, over 10,000 killed in action in the first day, the Romans still kept a force of little more than, uh, than 20,000 men, uh, though over 4,000 of them were wounded, leaving approximately a force of 15 to 16,000 men still able to fight. Now, the Romans had taken a severe beating in this engagement and effectively been halved in uh, fighting efficiency, but they were not annihilated. Now, they would have been if not for the coming dusk and the uh, Parthian uh, disinclination, if one wills it, to fight in the uh, fight in the night, or at least fight in the dark. So they were withdrawing to their camp sending message that Crassus would be given one day to mourn the loss of his son unless he would rather consent to be taken prisoner and to confer matters with King Orodes for peace. Now, Serenus was interested in ending the war and not to see it prolonged, and there was a great prestige in capturing the foremost Roman in battle. The Romans, however made for a problematic retreat to the, town of Tar to, to the town of uh, Karhai and were faced with the decision to leave behind the seriously wounded, numbering 4,000 men, to the whims of fate. Now, this is a terrible decision, and, and, and for those who are left behind, this is, this, this is, of course, certain death. Crassus sends a detachment of his remaining cavalry, 300 in number, to prepare the garrison at Karhai for the arrival of the main Roman army. Now, what happens is that those 300 cavalry, led by a certain Ignatius, decide that this is all bullshit. You know, we don't want any more of this. So they desert from their responsibilities after they inform what's up to the, uh, to the garrison commander Coponius. So they did ride back to Carhai and inform the garrison commander of the Roman defeat, but instead of going back to the battle, which yeah. <laughs> they definitely do not want to do, yeah. they just decided they had enough. <laughs> That's it. They've yeah. done their duty, which was to inform the commander of their defeat, yeah. but they're not going to go back there. To exactly. I mean, they, they just fuck off from, from, from the era, <laughs> essentially. So they, they just think, oh, what's it to us anymore? So Coponius, the commander of the garrison at Karai, 
senses that something really bad has happened. So he sends out an expedition to locate the uh, retreating army and help it back into safety. Uh, now, the bulk of the Roman main army reaches Carai successfully, but there is also a large number of stragglers who get lost. And for the Parthians, it doesn't really matter because they uh, they uh, spend the night just just recovering. You know, it, it has been a good good day of battle for them. So at the break of dawn, the Parthians they don't waste any time. They just swiftly ride out, and the uh, stragglers are really not difficult to find. And this is where light cavalry is is deadly, as they pick off stragglers one by one. So the Roman stragglers are swiftly dealt with, and at some point Serenus comes across the gathering of the 4,000 Roman wounded who were left behind. Now, the severity of their wounds mean that they can't be taken prisoner, especially at such a critical stage of day two in the battle, where the capture of Crassus was priority number one. So what happens is that those 4,000 Roman wounded are simply killed. And that's probably the most merciful thing to do at this point, given that they were stranded in the middle of nowhere without any means to get away. So, in another instance of catching up with stragglers, the Parthians catch up with a detachment of less than 2,000 Romans, or four cohorts, led by an officer named Varguntaeus, who had uh, made a last stand at a, at a hillock. Now, Varguntaeus' four cohorts were chanceless, but they took the more dignified route to their demise, showing great defiance and bravery, which earned them respect from the Parthians. And finally, when only 20 of them remained, they were allowed to withdraw without harm. Now, Serenus, with his forces fully united and having dealt with the uh, stragglers, now stands before something of a little dilemma here. Now, he knows that Crassus can't have gotten that far away with his army in such a state. They must have taken shelter somewhere. I mean, it's not like, like a bunch of birds that have scattered everywhere. So Karai is a candidate to look for due to its proximity. But this is not an obvious choice if one puts oneself into Serena's shoes, because garrisons existed elsewhere, not least in Nicephorium, in Ichna, in Dabana, everywhere, you know. But he receives a report, according to Plutarch, allegedly that Crassus was not in Karai, specifically not in Karai, and that he had made for the border. This is, of course, suspicious. The border was still days away. And the specificity of where Crassus wasn't was dubious, to say the least, and smacked of misinformation that, that rather made Serenus believe the opposite was true. Now, to confirm his own belief, he again resorted to tactical savvy. He sent a message to Karai relaying that he desired to hold a peace conference between himself and Crassus. In exchange, there would be truce, and the Romans would be guaranteed a safe withdrawal. Now, we have to understand that Serenus 
already knows he has won the engagement, but he wants to win the war. Getting the Romans out of Parthian territory was a priority, but if Crassus slips past him, that would constitute a failure and a continuation of hostilities. Now, if Crassus slipped back into Roman Syria, it would only be a matter of time before Crassus regained his strength and set out to avenge his losses. Now, to avoid a future problem and to solve the matter at hand, Crassus had to be taken, preferably alive. Now, Cassius, the eternal bonehead, gives reply to, to Serena's messenger, saying that Crassus would be willing to meet him. Now, you can imagine how overjoyed Serena's was at trusting his instincts. Crassus was in Carhai all holed up, and now the cat wasn't going to let the mouse slip away. Silicus, knowing his region all too well, must have informed Serena that Carhai at this time of the year was not boundless in resources, and that hosting an army of some 15 to 20,000 men, especially in a season before the harvest, was going to deplete supplies at a staggering rate. Now I have a question. Um, so sure why was <clears throat> Cassius the one that responded to uh, Serena's uh, offer for peace conference? Um, like, shouldn't, wouldn't, uh, you know, Crassius himself still be making decisions at this point? This is a really good question. Uh, and a clue is actually provided in Plutarch as he, uh, as he details how Crassus' first night quartering in, in uh, Carhai was seen visibly distraught and not really in a position to take command. It is also... Here that Plutarch describes that it was Crassus' deputies who largely took over uh, parts of the executive leadership, so to speak. So this also probably explains how Cassius got emboldened to the degree that he now could answer in the name of Crassus, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh... That makes sense because Crassius is, on one hand, he's suffering a, 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 a just a devastating defeat, and uh, on the yes. other hand, he also lost his son. So yeah, I can imagine his mental state Indeed. at this point Indeed. is probably, Indeed. you know, yeah. not, uh, yeah, not the greatest. Uh, okay. Worse, Cassius' stupidity. Now that we have mentioned how, how Cassius had confirmed Serena's uh, gut feeling, his instinct that Crassus was holed up in Carhai all along, Cassius' stupidity had now severely crippled Crassus' options and invited an enemy who is now at an impunity to sit and wait him out. The Roman leadership was now clearly failing uh, because of the uh, factors that I mentioned previously. However, the Roman leadership also convened and, and agreed to make for a withdrawal to the Syrian or Armenian border. Now, this without knowing that Orodes, the King Orodes, had already won Armenia at this point, uh, and that this, this supposed withdrawal would be uh, done under the cover of night, knowing that the Parthians 
we're not in the habit of um, of um, operating in the night. Uh, and this is a risky decision given how quickly Serena's had caught up with them and found them holed up at Karai. But, you know, the situation is dire and something something has to be done, you know. And, and, and if something has to count, it is that they still outnumbered the Parthians. They were not completely defenseless. So they, they agree to retreat separately and in different directions in order to distract the Parthians. Now, this is where we can really start to criticize the, uh, the decided, the, the option of retreat itself. That instead of retreating in one piece, retreats were being done in partition. One can see where they came from, but in hindsight, it proved to be perhaps a mistake. Now, Cassius, who we have now spent some time deriding, took a larger contingent, likely over 5,000 men, and headed for the Syrian border, but he sensed that his guide was leading them into a trap, and subsequently retreated back to Karai when all the other Romans had retreated without informing Crassus of this deviation in plans. So Cassius is is actually deserting. I mean, this, this is an act of desertion. And let's also be frank here. Cassius is singularly the most weaselly character in this entire ordeal. And Garrett Sampson, too, calls this desertion of the highest order. Now... So basically, the all the Romans have departed Carhai, uh, except Cassius doubled back <laughs> and went, went, yeah. went back to Carhai while the other... So, but where's Crassius? Was Crassius with the Cassius uh, 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 contingent, or, or or was Crassius no, among the Crassus, Romans? Crassius uh, had had already departed. He had departed with a separate contingent. So it's 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 it, it, it can get a little bit uh, confusing dealing with the chronologies here. But it is heavily implied that Cassius had retreat had had departed from Carhai, but later returned when no one else was there. So by the time Cassius had, had departed, possibly everyone else had departed, but he returned right. to, to Carhai anyway. Uh, and at some later point when... I can just see the, the light bubble at the Roman leaders' conference. You know, people were probably thinking, okay, so if we all stay together, we're just going to be <laughs> all killed together. But if we split up, now the per, you know the Parthian would have to decide which group to pursue. So individually, we actually yeah. increase our chance of escape. <laughs> there's a chance. Exactly. There's a chance yeah, exactly. the Parthian uh, pursue the other group, and then I may get away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's not really bad on paper, but the way it's executed is just shambolic, you know. But anyway. Uh, Serenus does note at daybreak that the Romans have escaped and orders his cavalry to search for the Romans. This is before Cassius decides to return back to Carai, of course. But uh, the Romans have anyway, most of them have largely made for a hilly region called Sinnaka. Now, no one has to my knowledge been able to locate Sinnaka, but based from my own original research into the mat matter, and from a tidbit recorded by Strabo, 
the geographer's travel, Seneca lay at the foot of Mount Masius, a montane region approximate to the ruins of Tigrano Kerta, the former Armenian capital and the namesake of Tigranes, the great of Armenia. Now, I have located Seneca itself at today's Senochak in modern-day Turkey. Uh, the terrain is quite uneven and hilly and not well suited for cavalry operations. So it wasn't a poor choice for the Romans to have opted for this route. Now, the Romans have not quite reached Seneca, and Serenus manages to catch up to a substantial Roman force of approximately 15,000 men in total. Crassus still commanded the whereabouts of 10,000 men, while his deputy Octavius, leading 5,000 men, observed the unfolding situation from higher ground and decided to join together with Crassus. Now, without thinking of his safety or that of his troops, many of whom were likely disgruntled with this decision that put them in harm's way. Now, Serena's realizes that this terrain is less than ideal for his cavalry and that it is here that Roman numbers may count for something. Crassus had a real chance of slipping away. So Serenus tries one last tactic, being the eternal tactician that he is. He now went himself and conveyed the message that he sought to have a peace conference. This is the second time the Romans get to hear this offer. Actually, a third time if one really goes back further in time when the Parthian embassy met with Crassus in Antioch, or fourth, I've lost count personally. Now, Crassus, of course, understand that this is a ruse, but the ordinary Roman soldier sees it very differently. Crassus had put them in harm's way, and it was due to his own deceit and avarice that he had gotten them all into this nightmare. And the Parthian wanted peace, not once, not twice, but now three times, and Crassus had gotten them into this, this caper. You know, I mean, I mean, he had gotten them into this bundle of bullshit. And this is how the Roman mutiny at Seneca begins. The Roman troops simply demanded and made Crassus go and parley with Serenus. They made him do it. After all, Serena's perspective could not be gainsaid or disputed. He had beaten the Romans and come with an offer of peace and to end the war. For the Romans, that war had turned into a horrific catastrophe. And this is where Plutarch finally assumes a modicum of fairness towards Crassus in a recorded exchange between Crassus and his senior officers, which is something like the following. Quote, let the world know that I perished because of the deceit of my enemies and not that because I was delivered there by my own countrymen, end of quote. Well, this is where the interest of the Roman common soldiers and their commander Crassus diverge because, you know, Crassus, as a seasoned commander, he clearly could see that the so-called peace offering is a ruse because the... Uh, Serenus and his Parthian army already had Roman uh, forces at his mm -hmm. mercy, 
at the point, uh, you know, to offer this general, seemingly very generous peace offer, um, it's just another way of of getting the the Roman commanders <laughs> delivered to his doorsteps. Um, exactly, exactly. And here's the. Th- but the Roman yeah. common soldiers don't see it that way because they're getting sick and tired of this war because they they know they're they have lost. They just want to go home. <laughs> and, and they just want to go home. And who can blame them? I mean, who can blame them at this point? You know. And here's the thing. With these words, of course, Crassus still wants to play it a little bit cautious. So first he sends two legates, uh, the Roscius brothers, to establish a form of protocol. Now, they don't return. They are presumably taken prisoner by Serenus. Now, this does not help things. Crassus is basically uh, compelled by his own troops to move on forward on foot, perhaps because he has lost his horse or whatnot, but he goes there together with with his other senior officers, Octavius and Petronius, to meet with Serenus and Silacus, the satrap of Mesopotamia, and Exathres, uh, also known as Promaxathres uh, in uh, the account by uh, Plutarch, and the rest of the Parthian military command consisting of the Chiliarchs, or the the, uh, master of, of a thousand, as, as they would be called, who each led a banner, each consisting of a thousand warriors. Anyway, Serenus now finally caught his mouse. But Serenus came to the parley on foot was even better. Now, upon seeing this, Serenus humorously remarks on the disparity uh, of his party being on horseback while his is on foot, uh, and sends for a spare horse for Crassus to mount. Now, there's a fair bit of dialogue going on here in that uh, Serenus seems keen to have some sort of uh, arrangement, but we're unsure of what happens. But what we do know is that all of this turns into a scuffle with uh, the Parthian groom uh, trying to goad on the horse to be... um, to gallop into the uh, Parthian side. And this leads, of course, to Octavius drawing his sword and cutting down the Parthian groom holding the horse. And the Parthians, not willing to tolerate this sort of insult, they cut down uh, Octavius and Petronius and the rest of the Roman uh, high command, saving Crassus for last. And Exathres, or Promaxathres, this Parthian noble and presumably high officer at Serena's retinue, has the uh, credit and the glory of killing Crassus and taking his head and right hand. Now, with this last gesture, Serena's had made short work of the Roman high command and sealed his victory. Now, Serena's had preferred to take Crassus alive, of course. One might even speculate that in killing Crassus, Serenus had paved his own path. However, the war was now entirely in Parthian hands, and the first token of, of that was his next action. Serenus addressed the remainder of the Romans perched at the hills to come down or otherwise be pursued. They would not have come to harm. Now, amazingly, a large number did so. The prisoner tally increased to a whooping 10,000 Romans. 
And the token of this great accomplishment included uh, Roman flags and standards, fasces, trumpets, and all the Roman ornaments of war. In total, 20,000 20, Romans had lost their lives in action. 10,000 were taken prisoner, and less than 10,000 had made it back to Roman Syria. Plutarch says 10,000, but Appian says less than 10,000. This means that three quarters of the Roman force was lost. The entire Roman command, except for Cassius Longinus, was wiped out. The Parthian casualties, in contrast, were minimal. The kill ratio and net efficiency of the Parthian force under Serena's was unprecedented. The conqueror of Seleucia, the crown giver, now had another triumph to add to his accomplishment. Now Serenus dispatches Silicus and Exathrus to send message to Orodes in Artashata with the remains of Crassus, that is his head in his right hand, Serenus makes his way to Seleucia, that once pro-Roman city of Mithridates III, that, that usurper, the renegade king. Now he was planning his own spectacle, no doubt having gotten such information from his Roman prisoners in the style of a Roman triumph, but in mockery of it. Serenus, who had to undo cons uh, Greek conspiracy after another, was now thoroughly fed up with the Greek faction in the uh, Parthian Empire. And the entire event was there to relay the following in no uncertain terms. Not only that the Romans had lost, but the East was here to stay. This is a really important detail to have in mind, that this wasn't just simply some mocking parade. It was a message of a much greater magnitude. Now, in Armenia, Silacus and Exathras reach Artashata. Orodes himself is triumphant, seemingly in a manner that implies a bloodless victory over his uh, Armenian combatants. Artavastas, the king of the Armenians, the ever-anxious and vacillating monarch who attempted to play the Romans off against the Parthians, is likely shocked to hear of the Roman defeat, and worse, seeing the decapitated head of Crassus. In the midst of a play, Silacus throws the head of Crassus into the stage, and the actor is made to pick it up, reciting the lines, and I quote, We bring from the mountain a freshly cut tendril of ivy to the palace, a wonderful prey. The chorus then chanting, and I quote, who slew him? Exathras, amused at this scene, sprang up to the scene, took the head of Crassus from the actor, and exclaimed, and I quote, Mine is the honor. Now, needless to say, Orodes was delighted at this brazen improvisation by his own, uh, well, by his own elites. Artavasdes is, well, one can almost gather, he's much less thrilled about this development. He was compelled to save his own skin. And now that he had married off his 
sister to Pacorus, Orodes' son, the uh, Parthian crown prince, he now stood before the very real headache that his brother-in-law was the Parthian crown prince. And Armenia had now been secured and brought back into the Parthian fold as it was during the age of Mithridates the Great, as we detailed in the previous episode. Now, back in Seleucia, Serenus, through a great triumph in the mock Roman style, dressing up a Roman prisoner who resembled the uh, surly Crassus in woman's dress and instructed him to repeat words that aim to take hits at Crassus' masculinity and his greed. Songs were sung ridiculing the Romans, and these were essentially the, the, the old diss tracks of antiquity. Serenus, anyway, then went over to the Peliganus, the Seleucid Senate, and he was there to diss them as well from the Roman loot. Serenus presented Greek works of erotica while ridiculing the masculinity of the Romans who apparently needed such things for recreation. <laughs> so it's just such a, a complete scene of, of, of throwing dissing, like, 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 like just dissing not just the Romans, but dissing the Greeks for even, for even putting their lots with the Romans, for starters. So by implication, he was signaling to the Seleucid senators that he was not going to tolerate their conspiring, and that with a single event, he had summoned the will of the people at their expense. Now they needed to watch themselves. Because right now, Romans and the Parthians were battling over all these buffer client state between them in, in East Mediterranean. And what Mr. Serena has done is to demonstrate to these Greeks that once for all, Parthian power is such so overwhelming. Don't even think about it. Like defecting exactly, 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 and he and, and and he goes no no expenses spared. I mean, it's probably because he has he has come across Crassus' baggage train. Crassus is the richest man in Rome, so it's probably that Romans are probably paying for this entire party that Serenus has been throwing in Seleucia anyway. So now, when the triumph. And the uh, Arsacid sojourn in Armenia settled down. The matter of war still persisted. I mean, there was still not a truce. I mean, it's true that the that Serenus had had decided the war, but the war was still going on, technically speaking. There was no peace settlement yet. The Roman military machine in the east had been crippled, reduced to a trifling ten thousand men at most, or two understaffed legions without any clear command. It's not, it's not at all obvious that Cassius is, is, is the obvious leader of this. Antioch, the principal city of the Roman East, now lay at the horizon, def virtually defenseless, and with it, the Parthian goal of reaching Syria. If there ever was a any opportunity to really seal the matter of the Romans in the East, this was a golden opportunity. And this, especially given the network of alliances that we addressed in the previous episode, 
especially given that network of alliances. The Roman East, quote-unquote, is largely made up of client kingdoms whose loyalty now began to shift towards the Parthians. Serenus had managed to achieve a complete reversal of the situation in 54 BC, and now it was the Roman East that stood defenseless and ripe for attack. All this was accomplished with one single battle. And Serena's name as the originator and the brainchild of this entire outcome was soaring in popularity. And for a monarch like Orodas, who murdered his father and murdered his brother to get his diadem, it now looked as if the diadem was paling in luster in comparison to the raging popularity of Serena's, who not only put that diadem on Orodas' head twice, but he also delivered Orodas' renegade brother to him. And now the seemingly invincible and the ever-so-capable Serena's had crushed the Romans using nothing more than a small army to achieve this, and with it, deliver rings of Roman military commanders, the head of Crassus Senior and Crassus Junior, and their standards, and without as much as getting scratched. Further, he took as many prisoners as there were soldiers in his army. Was there anything the man couldn't do? Now, this is a big threat to any ringing monarch when... Uh, uh, when one of his powerful general, you know, exactly. became more exactly. famous than he is, <laughs> and more popular, yes. and that's that's uh, that that makes any ruler unease at that yes. prospect. And and here's the thing, unfortunately, the things took a much more grim turn. Orodas, whose entire struggle was down to his own insecurity on the throne of the Arsacid Empire took the rise of Serenus as an alarm. And here's the catch-22 here. If Serenus wanted his crown, then Serenus was a danger. And if Serenus didn't want the crown, then surely he would remain kingmaker, and so Serenus would still be a danger. Serenus thus had to be killed. And with this and I cannot emphasize this enough, this enormous blunder. Rather than accepting the merits of Serena's system, which was obviously the way of the future, the Parthian triumph had been undone with one single stroke. And we don't hear much of the Mesopotamian satrap Silicus either. However, it is possible that he was demoted uh, or replaced or simply reassigned, given that a murder would have clearly made the headlines. Anyway, the repercussions for this were going to be massive. And I think this is where a part three can shed some light on why the loss of this exceptionally talented commander set the tone for the coming years in the Roman-Parthian War. Also, I think it would be a good opportunity to address the matter of Roman prisoners of war and their fate for that episode. You are talking about the long uh, 
legend of the lost Roman legion that somehow made their way to China, right? <laughs> exactly. And we're we are going to debunk the shit out of that, my friend. We're gonna debunk that will be part three, my friends. But that, uh, stay tuned. That's gonna be part three. But I would also like to add the following thing here. Uh, just just to take some time to address some of the usual rhetoric by casual commentators. And first, I, I address this because we're we're largely addressing the matter of the battle, the battle of Karai itself. Now, the first thing that's often brought up by casual commentators is the idea that a commander like Julius Caesar or Pompey would have performed radically different given the same situation Marcus Licinius Crassus was in. Now, I believe this view is not only misplaced, but it is a reflex on top of, on top of how misjudged the Battle of Karai has been in the Western historiography. There is a terrible tendency to view it as a Roman defeat not as a Parthian triumph. And in reflecting this reflex on top of that series of myths, like how Crassus should have known better, this is how the ignorance keeps perpetuating. Of course, this is all nonsense. There is no inherent indication that tells us that Julius Caesar or Pompey would have performed differently. They are Roman generals of the classic Marian doctrine brilliant as they as they were they were not invincible and the failure in understanding what serenus achieved and how he engineered a ferociously efficient anti-roman army anti-roman army from a previously anti-hellenistic parthian army really injures common knowledge on this battle but also obscures our own understanding for how the Parthians themselves made way for such innovations to be. Now, let me repeat. Crassus didn't lose because he was bad. Crassus lost because Serenus was exceptionally good, brilliant. Like, enough with the excuses and enough with the bullshit, you know? The Parthians were great fighters with excellent cavalry with a proven history of defeating the Hellenistic powers at their height. It is not a coincidence that they earned and forged an empire with influence spanning from the Euphrates to the Indus River Valley. Now, transplanting Julius Caesar or Pompey instead of Crassus isn't going to steal away Serena's brilliant victory, nor remove his innovative and smart approach to warfare. It is, I would say, patently childish to assume otherwise, given, especially given what we today know of Romans increasingly co-opting Iranian-style cavalry and eventually given giving preference to the cataphract than to the legionary infantry as the elite of the Roman army. Now, some might reply that Julius Caesar, for his tentative Parthian campaign, 
was going to bring more cavalry before he got murdered. But when you think about it, it sounds more like he was doing a Crassus 2.0 when Crassus was bringing more cavalry to address what he then believed would be a typical Parthian army. But of course, I leave this to the listeners to I have to point out, though, uh, by the time that Julius Caesar was going to do the Crassus 2.0, there's no more Serenus. I mean, he definitely was one of the decisive factor in the battle itself. True enough, true enough. Uh, but that's the thing about history. We don't really know. Serenus, for all his brilliance, is not the only brilliant Parthian commander. And this is something I would like to open up for perhaps future episodes in this podcast, uh, if there's any interest in it, because... Serenus, because Serenus, even though he is criminally overlooked as he is already, yes. he's also very often treated as the only brilliant Parthian commander. He is not. But now for the second thing here, uh, there is a tendency to overlook the, the mathematics of this entire ordeal and why Serenus' approach to warfare is criminally overlooked. Now, I cannot emphasize enough what Serenus has contributed to military theory. And I think the only reason why he hasn't been taken seriously is, and let's be honest, it's really down to uh, a long time of anti-Oriental conceit and the inability to admit that the Roman military machine with its quote-unquote universal infantry core concept had reached the limit of its capacity and its performing function. And I think it is illogical to think that infantry can compare in performance to cavalry in those conditions that we have outlined in this episode, or that those conditions magically change by switching out the uh, commanders. I think the the math itself, well, it, it really speaks for itself that so I, I agree i mean just by swapping out crassius with uh, julius caesar is not going to change the fact that he led a force mostly infantry against uh yeah, all yeah. cavalry force who just outclass it in both armor mm. mobility uh and pretty much everything else <laughs> information information warfare not to say the least The Romans lost because they had a different expectation of the Parthian army, and the Parthians won because they called that bluff and adapted accordingly. It is that adaptability. Adaptability is is almost everything in, in warfare. But I have prattled on long enough. I think this is a very good way to finish this this episode that was an excellent excellent two and a half hours worth of the epic battle of Carhai, where um you know for the first time the east and the west um represented by the roman republic and the parthian empire clashing a decisive manner and rome was would suffer its probably the worst defeat in centuries uh, at the hands of the the, the 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 Persians, and we would definitely like to have you back. Oh yeah, because we're gonna oh, yeah. talk about 
the, the last Roman legion <laughs> in China. We're going to settle that once for all on this podcast. Hey, I'm all glad to be here, and I'm going to look forward to be part of that episode as well. Thanks for having me, Carl. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, everybody else, uh, thank you for listening, and uh, please subscribe.